Hello and welcome, Nationals fans, to the Dogcast, the podcast that's more loaded than a Bryce Harper tweet. I'm your host, Blake Finney, and I'm quite jealous of our next guest, who's going down to West Palm Beach in a nice warm weather for the first time soon. Today, we're joined by Washington Post Nats beat writer, Jesse Doherty. How are you doing, Jesse? Doing well, man. That's a that's a good loading joke. I'm jealous of your uh, your sort of effortless humor there. I like that. <laughs> yeah, some of them are easy, uh, especially <laughs> when Bryce Harper's doing all these cryptic tweets. It gets... Uh, been quite easy this off season. Yeah, sure. Uh, so with spring training just a matter of days away, three days away it's until pitches and catches report at the time of recording. Um, we're going to start off with Bryce Harper. The last few podcasts we've actually managed to wait until kind of midway through, but I think at, at this point he's the he's the main storyline hanging over the team. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's the main storyline hanging over baseball right now. Uh, the, the market sort of stalled behind him. With there's about five or six or what I would call higher level free agents who, who haven't found their, their new homes because of the market and the way it's sort of been frozen around Harper and Machado. But it's so, it's so weird. You, you never thought you never could have imagined spring training beginning without knowing where Bryce is going to go into play, but I'm not going to commit to say that this is, this is going to happen Monday or Tuesday this week. So there's a very good chance that 30 teams go into spring training without knowing sort of what the competitive landscape even looks like. It, it, it's not just a nationals question. It's a question for, if you're in the NL West and you're the Dodgers, now you have to play against the Giants or Padres with Bryce. Are you building differently or are you building differently in the AL Central if the White Sox have him? So it really affects the way a lot of teams would spend and build just because of how the, the landscape of their division would, would change if Bryce was in it. So, yeah, baseball sort of just waiting for this. And it's it's so bizarre that teams are going to convene in West Palm or, or wherever that, that they're going to convene without knowing where Bryce is going to go. It's, it's weird. Yeah, even entering the offseason, it was kind of conservatively predicting, well, maybe like mid-January, end of January, if Boris tries to drag it out. But the fact that, yeah, they're going to, most teams are probably going to report before he signs. I think, when do position players report about a week after pitches and catches? Is that kind of a rough deadline? But obviously, it may even stretch yeah, into March. Maybe not, right? Like, you, you'd imagine so. But uh, like the, for, for the Nationals team that's, that's in the mix. Like they're going to go ahead and have certain players compete for outfield spots, not quite knowing if Bryce Harper could be in the mix a week, a week later. Uh, yeah, Nationals pitchers or position players report a week from Monday. Uh, the pitchers and catchers report on Wednesday. So yeah, there's a little, little bit of a gap there, but I wouldn't call it a deadline. I guess it's a loose deadline. You'd, if you're Bryce, you'd want to start spring training with your new team about when other guys do, but it right now it looks, it looks like uh, the deadline is for when he gets an offer he wants or, or however it's going to shake out. It's so funny. Like I remember getting a text from somebody, I wouldn't call them in the know, but I would say that they are sort of um, abreast of certain things. And it was the Saturday before the winter meetings in Vegas, which is early December. And someone told me, you know, I really, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of momentum toward a big Bryce announcement. this week. Like that was early December. <laughs> we're, we're going to spring training and this hasn't happened. So, you know, part of me is like, man, I just wish that was true. And, uh, and we just, we knew the last two months or whatever, but, it's uh, it's so it's so odd, and and I it's really hard to peg. It's it's really hard to know what's going on and what the offers are, or if there even are any. So, uh, yep, it, the drum beats on on Bryce Harper. Yeah, and uh, I think Ken Rosenthal reported that he's still holding firm in asking for over three hundred million, and now it looks like there's five teams in the hunt. The Phillies are probably, I don't know, probably the Phillies and Nationals are the front runners, but then you've got the Giants and Padres who have come in, and they've met with him in the last week or so. Um, do you think? Those two teams are just kind of exploring the possibility rather than going hard at him like the Phillies. 
Yeah, it's it's so it's hard to tell. The, I guess my, the logic I've sort of stuck to, and this is something that uh, Todd Dibas for NBC Sports sort of pointed out, and I think it's a really astute point, is that if the Phillies wanted Bryce Harper and they went into the offseason saying they're going to spend stupid money or stupidly, which is probably the most overused quote in my <laughs> writing as well, the, the whole offseason, uh, wouldn't they have him already? Like if the Phillies really had all this money and all these ambitions to spend, 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 then what's the holdup? Where's the $350 million deal that gets this thing done? Where's the $320 million deal? Where's the money to beat Stanton or Grinky or all these different milestones? If the Phillies wanted Bryce, I imagine they'd have Bryce. Uh, and that maybe it's not so black and white or so binary, but I, I do think that there's some something to be said about him not being on that team yet. So I don't know how even in they are uh, for at least what Bryce is asking. So I think I think the Giants' involvement's real. I do think uh, it seems based on reports and rumblings that they'd rather go for a shorter term high AAV deal than they would for a decade long contract or, or whatever it may be. And then on the national side, yeah, they're, they're still involved. It's, it's, it's probably going to be an ownership decision at this point, more than anything, they're going to go way over the luxury tax. They're about, they have about a $10 million cushion. Now you figure Bryce is a $30 million a year player just about. So you'd be going 20 to 25 million over the luxury tax. That's ownership decision. That's not something Mike Rizzo can sign off on. It's not really his money at this point. Uh, well, it's never his money, but you know, you know, it's it's not his decision then. But um, yeah, I'd say four to five teams are really in it. Uh, the, the the dreaded mystery team probably exists lurking in the lurking in the in the weeds, but it's such a smaller market than we thought, and I think that's why it's been hard for Boris to drive prices up because it's not that bidding war that he he expected. Yeah, I think I definitely agree on the on the Phillies point you've made. They could even for Machado for that sake as well. They could go right is. 10 years, 350 million, and no one seems to be coming close to that. So if that was on the table, that would be snapped up in a hurry. Right, and I imagine right now if Bryce could beat the Nats' initial offer of 10 years, 300, he would. Like, if you could sign tomorrow morning to play for the Giants for 10 years, 320, I think I, I think the worst thing optically that could happen for him and Boris is that he winds up taking less money than that, either on an AAV or total. So – the other option I could see for Bryce, and I don't think this is going to happen, but it's possible, is a really high AAV deal for short term, like a two years 80 or a two years 75, where he's going to beat Grinky for the highest paid player per year in, in baseball history, but not get that long contract, bet on himself a bit and say, okay, we'll get the bigger contract in two years now. I don't think that happens, but that's also a possibility where you could say, hey, we're the highest paid player ever, but not maybe get what you initially sought out for. Yeah, I think I could see that happening, especially if he can get a deal that goes beyond the current CBA, which may be a, a key point, especially in the long terms and making sure right. it's not out just after that, because with the way that we've seen free agency stall over the last couple of years, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the CBA. It may become, maybe it becomes more player friendly. Right. Uh, there was one last report that we touched on. I think it was on Friday where JP Morosi talked about how Nat's ownership may be willing to match a potential Phillies bid just to keep him out of the NL East in comparison to going to say the NL West. Is that something you could see playing out? Um, I don't know if it's going to be so important to keep him out of the NL East. I do think just because of the relationship that Bryce has with Washington and Scott Boris has with the Lerner family, that the Nationals will get sort of right of, right of refusal for any final deal. I don't think, you know, like, let's say 340 over 10 from the Padres. I, I'd imagine Bryce wants 
Boris to bring that offer back to the Nationals. So I don't. I think that's maybe the biggest thing there. I don't think it's necessarily going to be, hey, we'll shell out because we don't want him playing for the Phillies. That sounds like sort of smoke for fan base a little bit more than it maybe is reality. But I'm not going to say John's wrong. John's a great reporter, but um, it, I, I don't. I don't think it's like the Nationals are going to just you know back up the truck because because he's going to be in Philadelphia. I, I would I would say that's probably not. Yeah, I think I agree. And it's again, you say it's something like the fans would want to see because that's that's the one place fans don't want him to go, Philadelphia. They could right. probably live if he gets all that money and goes out the West. Even if he gets a like Brink's truck of money for four hundred million, we could probably live with him going to Philadelphia. But yeah. Right. Um, but like you say, I think the the key point is they're gonna come back to the nationals no matter what. I think it does sound like if if the money's the same, he's gonna come back to DC just as kind of the, yeah. the deciding factor. Uh, one signing that did actually happen in the past few days was the Nationals <laughs> bringing back Jeremy Hellickson on Friday. Signed a one-year, one-point-three million-dollar deal with four million worth in, in incentive. So he went five and three with a three-four-five ERA in nineteen starts last year. I think for for me the interesting point was that it was a a major league deal because that's going to have ramifications on the likes of. Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, did you like the deal on the whole? Yeah, I think it's I think it's smart. I think those guys, when you think about that fifth starter spot, if it was originally going to be a conversation or a competition between Ross and Fetty, that was fine. But you bring in Helix in. I think the idea of the major league contract is that he'll be the fifth starter on opening day. The Nationals are going to call it a competition. They're smart too. You want to motivate Fetty and Ross as much as possible. If one of those guys blows you away in spring training, then yeah, you're going to bring him on and and make him the fifth starter because the upside definitely is higher than Hellickson, who was really a two-time through the order guy last year for the most part. But all that said, I do think the major league contract sort of guarantees him a spot on the roster. I don't think that there's a situation where they would ask for him to to accept an assignment or or get rid of him for the year. So he's either going to be in that fifth spot or maybe in a swing role in the bullpen, but I'd expect more than anything for him to be on the, on the team in that rotation. And I I do, I do like it for the Nats. I, I think, those guys will benefit Ross and Fetty from just pitching more uh, in sort of low leverage situations. Ross is sort of still is still recovering from that Tommy John surgery. Uh, Fetty was out last year with shoulder inflammation for a lot of the summer, so they just need to get reps, starts, throw throw a lot of innings. And in the minor leagues, situation doesn't really matter that much. There's never going to be a a spot where you say, oh, you know, pitcher spot's coming up. We need to hook you after four, or three, or five, or or you know, a third time through the order against a good lineup, and they don't want to pl- pitch them. Down in AAA, they can throw six innings every night, test them, see how it goes. And I think that will go a long way for both those guys. And Hellickson sort of serves as a reliable stopgap in the meantime. And, and you know, if he's, and if he's not good, then they'll, they'll bring a guy up and they'll replace him. But uh, all in all, yeah, I think it was, it was a smart signing. Yeah, I think for, for that money as well, 1.3 guaranteed is – it does give them a little bit of flexibility. Like you say, if Ross or Feddy blows them away in spring training, then they can put them up. But – um yeah, I think it's it's a good sign. And last year, like you were saying, they were restricting him to two times through the order. I think the OPS the third time through was like one point two or something stupid like that. So yeah. he's gonna be someone who's gonna keep them in games, which is about all you can ask for from a fifth star. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I, the one concern for me is those injuries. I, they were a bit fluke. It was right hamstring injury running to first base and then a, a right wrist injury, but hopefully he's past that and 
hey, if you've got Max Scherzer pitching after him more often than not, then it's not that much of a worry if he taxes the bullpen a bit. Right, and that's the thing. I, I think those injuries were a bit odd. Maybe speaks to a bit of fragility you know, for his uh, for his body, but I think you'd be more concerned if they were related to his throwing motion, mm. like shoulder, elbow, whatever it may be. So the fact that those were sort of like, you know, he falls on home plate and lands on his wrist, you're, you're not as worried about him from a year-to-year perspective because that is like a fluke situation. And, and, yeah, the bullpen point's interesting. The, the one thing I will say there is that if they're going to have him be a two, two-time through-the-order guy, they need to have a swing man in place. I don't, I don't really know who that is right now. I think if Sammy Solis were to bounce back considerably and, and join the bullpen and be a good lefty guy, then maybe Matt Grace can go a few innings, be your longer guy. Um, Wander Suarez is more of a one-inning guy. So it's tough to know who is, the, is in place for when Hellickson does go four and a half or you know, four and a half, half an mm-hmm. four and a third or you know, four and two thirds or, or whatever it may be. So the Nets do need to have somebody who's sort of set in that role before I'm really confident in that setup because if Hellickson's only going five every game, it's hard to ask your bullpen to sort of switch up roles on the fly without one guy delineated to have that take that spot in those games. Yeah, I think like, Matt Grace has definitely impressed me in that multi-inning role. He's had, I think, um, the one that sticks out to me was the one against the Red Sox where he went about four innings. But right. like you say, maybe um, you have a couple of guys. Swero can go some. One one that I particularly looked at was potentially Joe Ross going to the bullpen in a similar situation to Josh Hader, where he's got two outstanding major league pitches and then he hasn't the change up still hasn't quite developed. And again, that may be another way to restrict his innings this year coming off Tommy John. Is that something you could see potentially? I think it makes sense. I my inclination is that if he's not the fifth starter, they want him to still be a starter down the line, especially because Helixon's not a long, you know, a long-term solution in the back of your rotation. So I think Joe Ross still is being projected internally as an end of the rotation starter. So for that reason, they'll want him to start, especially coming off. You, you, once you go to the bullpen, you sort of lose your length a bit. You just kind of you get into the rhythm of throwing one inning, two innings, and you and you sort of lose that ability to go five, six, seven. So I think they want to keep him stretched out in, in, as a starter. So while I agree with you that his stuff would play, especially that he sort of relies on two pitches right now. I think it's probably better for the Nationals long-term and for him if he's going to be a starter to go to go to AAA to stretch out his arm and also develop third, fourth pitch in order to become a better starter in the future. So while I think him as a swingman could be logical and, and, and work really well in the short term, the longer view would probably say he goes he goes to the minors and, and still develops as a starter. Yeah, I'd, I would probably agree even though it was my idea. But <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's a good idea. I, I, I really do. I think his stuff plays well out of the pen, but I, I do think that their view right now is that he's Yeah, I think it, it would be interesting to see how the Nationals would have handled things if A, Ross was out of options. I think he's got one option which allows them to send him down to the minor right. or B, he wasn't coming off Tommy John. I think it's kind of that storm of both of them that's going to allow them to bring Helixson in and have Ross down in AAA, perhaps limiting his in slightly down there by going like five every night where um, it's not affecting the big league team. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. So we've kind of touched on it there with the battle for the fifth spot. You've got the main three, uh, Helix and Rust and Feddy. Obviously, Helix and strong favorite, but they have brought in Henderson Alvarez on a uh, non-roster invitation. Carl McGowan was fairly impressive, but it is good. it does seem like it's going to take someone to absolutely blow them away and Helix and probably to struggle a bit as well. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think that McGowan, Austin both, um, 
Henderson Alvarez, if he proves that he can maybe eat some innings at the major league level again, are kind of your seven, eight, nine, ten guys. I mean, last year, nine guys made three or more starts. Twelve guys made starts overall. Nationals would love for this season to be a one in which they use five or six guys to get through it. I don't know how realistic that is. So I think you're going to need those depth guys, and and they have a few in place. I don't think the depth's great. It's not strength, but um, once you get past Ross and Fetty, it's a little fishy. But um, yeah, the fifth spot I would say is Helixons to lose, and and that means uh, with him, he's sort of just steady. You know what you get, and the Nationals know what he is. So it would probably take a lot for him to lose that. Yeah, I think the having Ross as six, Fetty as seven, where I think Fetty was basically six last year, and then it went down to. It was Tommy Malone was somewhere like seven or eight, and that's not a situation that you want to you, you want to be in. So right. if you have that, that, I think like you say, it's a bit better, but it's not fantastic. I think that that probably speaks, if anything, to the Nets' ability to develop starting pitching prospects at the moment. Although that should be getting better slowly. Right. Yeah. There, there are some guys that are a few years away that that are pretty solid. Uh, there's a little bit of a gap here between Betty and the next wave of sort of the prospect pitchers, but that's going to happen, um, especially. I mean, they've they've developed some pretty impressive, you know, position players recently. So I think I think this this just ebbs and flows. And they've also they compete every year at the major league level with their twenty five man roster. So it's uh, it, it to for them to be so well stocked in the minor leagues would probably be a pretty high expectation. But yeah. but like you said, I mean, the, the depth looks a little bit better than it did last year. Uh, it's still not great, especially when you're you're sort of building your identity around pitching. Shameless plug. That's going to be an article we have out tomorrow <laughs> in the Washington Post. So you can read that. Um, but but it's it's uh, they're in, they're going in the right direction. Yeah, uh, you've got a couple of battles in spring training. So I think one of the key ones is going to be around the last spot in the bullpen. Locked it, probably locked in at the moment. You've got Doolittle, Bearclaw, Rosenthal, and Grace, and then you've got kind of the last three. You've got Justin Miller, who started excellent and unreal, but then he dropped off. And then you've got some of the younger arms in Swearer and Glover. Do you think they'll go with those seven, maybe an eight? How do you see the rest of the bullpen shaking out? Yeah, I, I, I honestly need to like get my counting fingers out because seven guys, it sort of starts to jumble up my brain. But yeah, you were right in that. I think Doolittle, Grace, Rosenthal, and Bearclaw would be your definites. And I'd probably put Glover on that list uh, if he's healthy. Um, obviously, he has to. Um, prove that in, in spring training and, and, and sort of, but, but he was pretty solid. I think he got put in a tough spot last year when everyone was hurt. He came right off injury and was a closer right away. So then you have two open spots. I know the nationals um, really like what they saw from Swearer last year. He has really good splits against lefties. And then I would think if Solis is solid, he's the front runner for that spot. Cause it gives you a third lefty and he's proven in the past. That he can be really good against lefties. I think you're moving away from the whole matchup one pitcher, one batter guy, like a, you know, um, whoever, whoever it was, but grace is good against lefties, but I think they need another, another arm, especially because do those pretty locked into the ninth. So you're not going to match up with him ever. Um, that said, I think Justin Miller does have a chance too. So it, those are the eight. Uh, I don't think Cordero is sort of there quite yet. It's pretty good stuff, but just hasn't developed, but I think Swearer has the inside track with Miller and, and Solis to get one spot. And then those guys are going to, we're going to battle for it. They also brought in Vidal Nuno, who's kind of an interesting case, sort of a Henderson Alvarez vote of minor league deal, spring training invite. I don't think he he um, is a lock either or anything, but I think he's going to be in the mix. He's, and he's another lefty who has, who has pretty good splits as well. So 
Um, that that's how I'd see it, but it's definitely going to be one of the conundrums during during spring training is to find out who fills out that bullpen. Yeah, I think they started last year with an eight-man bullpen. So again, if they go for that, I do think that it'll be Miller, Swearer, and Glover. I think Swearer makes it because of that ability to go multiple innings. But like you say, I think Solis is that front runner for that eight spot. But they only gave him what. Eight hundred and fifty thousand. So even then, he's he's not a lot because of his contract at all. Right. No, for sure. And he, you know, he's out of options as well. But if he if he hits waivers, I think that's if he doesn't prove something in spring training here, like they're fine with that. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see. Yeah, and you're right. Like that, that could be an eight per, eight man bullpen. I'd expect seven, but uh, if it is eight, it kind of gets easier to decide then because you just have more spots. And uh, and then Solis and Miller might both get a chance there. Yeah, I think. Oh, yeah. One possible name to watch for me was uh, James Bork, the guy that they added to the 40-man roster in November, December, sometime around then, who he was lights out in single A and double A. I don't know if he makes it out of spring training, but I think he's at least going to leave a, a good impression on the team and kind of move himself up the pecking order a bit. Yeah, he's in that next wave. And I think maybe a candidate to surprise in spring training and, and – uh and make some noise and uh yeah he, uh, in terms of the young arms the organization has and and they're excited about he's definitely in that group of, of next guys getting a chance do you think they're gonna um they're gonna leave some of these guys in double a perhaps i think it's more relevant for the bullpen where you'd need to call someone up on short notice obviously now they've got the triple a team in fresno which is far from ideal for emergency call-ups yeah, yeah, I could see that. Whereas some guys you think could go up and down based on injuries or whatnot could uh, could stay in Harrisburg. I think the the guys like Fetty and Ross will definitely go to Fresno. You'd have a, a bit of a cushion if a guy got hurt in a start. You'd have four days in between the next one. So, uh, but yeah, the young relievers that that's an interesting thought. Uh, I think I don't think the Nationals will let it affect them too much if they want to see a guy against tri- AAA competition. Like they're going to get him out there and then if they had to bring up somebody that they didn't want to for a game or two, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit more fluid, but the, the, the geography is a little confusing this year. So they'll figure that out. Yeah. It's not quite. <laughs> right. Uh, other battle, so one that doesn't have uh 25 man rust, roster implications is uh starting catcher. So they've brought young Gomes in uh, from the Cleveland Indians and Kurt Suzuki back on a two year deal. You would think, Gomes, the front runner for that, 7.62 OPS last year and was an all-star. And I think what's going to win it for him is his defense. I think I, I wrote an article on this, and he's really good at blocking, which is going to be key for the likes of Scherzer, Corbin, people who like to bounce stuff in the dirt. Do you think he's the front runner as well? Yeah, and I think it's going to be, again, like a pretty fluid situation in terms of like week-to-week, day-to-day who starts. But I would say like how you'll define starter by the end of the year is just the split of you know, of, of, of start of games. So I, I could see Gomes like a hundred to 60 or 90, 90, 70 is probably a little too close in terms of split, but maybe like 160, maybe 110 max. And then Suzuki playing pretty often. If you need an offensive boost, Suzuki has, has a pretty good power numbers, uh, especially late in his career. So, and then, and then again, I think you could see pitchers working with certain catchers like Annabelle and Suzuki had great chemistry last year. For Atlanta, so I would I would expect Kurt to catch him more often than not. So that would be a chance to get him in the order and get him at bats. There's no natural platoon since they're both righties, uh, which I think would be would be a great situation if you had a righty lefty switch there. And um, 
yeah, I mean, combined, I think that's that's one really, really good catch. You combine the two of them, and I think Gomes will definitely win out. I don't even know if it's considered a huge competition, but we'll we'll definitely see more opportunities in Sudoku. Yeah, I think they, they mentioned it as a competition, but like you say, it's tif- difficult to have a straight out competition when one guy's probably going to be starting for three starters and the other guy's going to be starting for two starters. Right. Uh, on that note, with the Phillies acquiring JT Romuto, how do you think the Nats did in comparison to that? Because that was one of the storylines entering the offseason with the Nats jump back in on Romuto. And I think they've probably got. A- Better situation than the Phillies, but that price that the Phillies gave up for him wasn't as high as I was expecting. Yeah, and I think that if you sort of match up, it's hard to match up the prospects that the Phillies gave to the, to the national system because there probably isn't a pitching prospect on the level of there definitely isn't a pitching prospect on the level of Sixto Sanchez who ends up being the centerpiece. So you you figure the Nats would have had to give up one of their main position players, whether it's Victor Robles, Juan Soto, Carter Keboom. So, Soto and Robles, I don't think were ever a possibility. And I think Mike Rizzo said that publicly at either the GM meetings or the winter meetings. So I, and then Keboom, I, a bit more expendable because of the national setup with Trey Turner and Anthony Rendon. But I, I do think that the fact that they have a pretty good situation now, catcher, like I said, if you combine those two guys, you probably have a, I don't know, an all-star catcher, but you maybe something close to it. Um, that, they don't really need. They didn't really need Real Muto at the end of this. I mean, one thing you can say is like when Zimmerman moves on, Real Muto can move to first base if you get him long term. He's such a good bat. So obviously he fits. He's such a he's such a talented player, and he's going to be for many years. But I don't think the Nationals are. I don't think it was a huge miss that they didn't get him, especially in the short term with this team sort of set up to win now as is. So I, yeah, I thought it was interesting to see the package how it came out, and I think the Nationals could have put together one that was pretty similar. Uh, if not better, but whether they wanted to is a different story. And, and obviously now they don't need to spring for that given their roster. Yeah. yeah. I, like you say, I, I agree that they're the two they've got now is probably better than one Real Muto. It just depends, I guess, what they would have paired with Real Muto in that scenario. Would they have, I don't know, gone with maybe signed Suzuki again? But yeah, I think right. I'm probably higher on young Gomes than everyone else's, but. That's a, that's a, the young. Like you said, also catcher, like he's a little bit older and catchers traditionally don't age that well, but there's an example of uh, Kurt Suzuki aging great on, on the same team. So maybe he'll, he'll keep going and maybe there's some advice Kurt can give on, on how to uh, stay fresh in your thirties at catcher. So mm. I, I, I think they did great there at that position. Yeah. And one final competition. Well, it, it's one that the team are posing as a competition, but I guess from the outside looking in, uh, the starting center field job kind of looks like it's going to head towards Victor Robles, but uh, I think Dave Martinez mentioned at Winterfest that it's going to be an open competition between Robles and Michael A. Taylor. Do you think it's it's pretty much Robles is to lose? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I do think it again like behooves the Nationals to make that an open competition just because it keeps Taylor motivated and hopefully sort of gets some of his confidence up because you're going to need him. Uh, I don't think they want to put a full time starter load on Robles right away, especially because he has two total months of major league service time. So I think you're going to want Taylor in the mix as a pretty consistent fourth outfielder mixing in. He's also a good late game substitution, whether it be like in right field for Adam Eaton or how they want to shift things around. But um, yeah, I'd I'd say that's Robles' spot. Uh, He's going to be pretty dynamic, whether he's at the top of the order or hitting maybe he's in the six, seven spot. 
Um, and uh, yeah, and he's a guy who potentially has uh, four and a half, five tools. So I'd say get him started sooner rather than later if he's ready. Yeah, I think uh, especially where if he does lose out, he's going to go down to Triple Eight as well. You you would have kind of an interesting dilemma there if he did lose out because you were you want him playing every single day. So that probably gives him a slight handicap for um, for the major league starting center fielder role. Yeah, I could see that for sure, and and I think. That's why you'll see him be regularly playing just for the sole fact of when guys are ready, typically the Nationals are shown. They don't really mess around too much with service time manipulation or, or anything like that. They're, they're pretty uh, steadfast and sort of letting him go and, and letting him get started. And I think, I think like you said, he's, he's ready. Hmm. And I think it's uh, kind of going into some of the other storylines to watch during spring training, the performance of Robles, because we saw him dazzle last year, even though he wasn't quite ready. I don't know if there was some service time manipulation going on there with him going down to AAA, but I guess Taylor was coming off a nice season. Uh, and one of the other prospects that I think everyone's going to have an eye on this year is Kyle Keeboom, and we'll probably see him at second base a lot longer than we did. I think he played shortstop last year, but he went down to minor league camp, camp pretty quickly. But after the season he's had, he's going to have a lot of eyes on him this spring. Yeah, and I think you'll see a lot of second base in spring training from him. I, I, I'd imagine that when he... Uh, if he'll probably start in Fresno, um, could start in Harrisburg, but most likely Fresno. And I think once he's there, you'll see a mix of second base and shortstop just because once he learns the sort of feel at second and the, and the positioning and the angles, they want him to still be a shortstop. And, and just because they're, one, there's just higher value there. If he did become a trade piece when you play both infield spots and two, the transition, the other way is easier once you, when you're playing shortstop regularly to go over to, sh- to second base. So um, yeah, he'll, he'll definitely be an interesting storyline to watch during spring training. I could see him making his debut this year at some point. Um, if not before, then as a September call-up. But uh, yeah, he's he's a really talented player. Middle infield's a really valuable spot. Nationals really value their defense up the middle, as they've um, not, not necessarily when Daniel Murphy was there, but they've wanted to shift over to, uh, to sort of valuing that more in, in, in the coming in coming years. So um, he's, he's an interesting guy, and I think he's one that you're going to have to watch as sort of the next – next big one to come up if he continues on his path. Yeah, I think there's, there's virtually no chance he starts in the major leagues unless there's probably a couple injuries, you would think. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I don't think he will. And I, I think you're, you'll probably see Tifo and Kendrick up there as the sort of utility guys. And um, that's that's just way more likely. Again, because like you said, sort of said with Robles, they're going to want him playing every day. He's, he's pointing north and, and he's playing really well. So... Uh, especially coming off a good end of last season. I don't think you want him playing every, you know, what, six or seven games with pinch hitting appearance. You'd rather him getting in there right away. Hmm. Uh, the other thing is going to be the approach that management are going to take. So last season we saw all the, the camels, the walk-off practice, the, the hole-in-one competition, but it sounds like Dave Martinez is going to bring kind of a, a new approach and a new motto of the little things and uh, kind of making a, a big deal of fundamentals. Do you think that's the right way to go? Yeah, and I think that was sort of one of the themes of the national season last year was not executing that one pitch or making that one play or the base running blunder or whatever it is or moving that guy over. And um, they, they were a team last year that won a lot of lopsided games and lost a lot of close games. And those close games, the it's cliche, but you know they're decided by inches and they're decided by one play or one pitch. And uh, to, to sort of shift your approach to say we're going to really get down to business and sort of really drill down on these fundamentals. It might sound sort of um, little league or, or sort of like you're a high school coach, but I think uh, 
he wants to he wants to really stress that because he does not want to be sitting in August again selling off key players and saying we didn't do enough of the little things during the season in order to be competitive for the stretch run. So I, I think it is a smart approach, and I think it's definitely one we're going to see manifest itself in how they approach spring training this year. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting how exactly they go about that. He's kind of teased a little bit, saying like they're not going to use bats one day and like go to the field for all of one day. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, and I think it's it's right that he's done it this way around. I think last year he he didn't want to mess too much with a team that had just gone to two straight division titles, but this year he's got a little bit more to prove after a down season. For sure. And I think sort of that lack of success last season sort of puts the team a bit more in his hands. Like you mentioned when it's sort of a veteran led group that's had success and you come in and, and you're kind of like almost facilitating it. You're not necessarily driving the ship, but in this case, like they really underachieved last year and, and what needs to be better starts from him on down and he kind of can take more ownership. And I'm not going to say what happened last year was good, but in the sense of Martinez getting ownership over the team and, and the job, that it probably was a good thing. And, and I think you're going to see him be more assertive in that role and, and that, that probably will end up producing better results. Yeah, I think there were definitely signs that he, he grew. It was still disappointing overall, but you had the signs. I think he, had, well, he basically had the players um, in the palm of his hands, even if they didn't perform, which is something that you can't, uh, you can't develop as a coach, really. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. Do you have any other storylines that you're particularly looking out for this spring? Uh, no, I mean, I think Robles is, is super interesting, and especially in a in a post-Bryce Harper world, if if that is the, what we are indeed moving toward for the Nationals, he's he's immensely important. Of course, like Juan Soto's sort of encore is going to be really fun to watch and really interesting to sort of gather how teams are going to face him now that there's a year of, year of film and he and to, to dissect on his approach and, and his hitting and uh and I, and I just think again to sort of tease what's coming out in the post this week with us like the investment the nationals may have made in starting pitching close to 100 million dollars on their rotation like that's that is that you create expectations for results that way and if you're gonna sort of hitch your entire identity or half your payroll um more money than some teams spend on their entire rosters on frontline starters and Annabelle Sanchez in this case, who a lot of teams would maybe pay as a higher guy than number four. I, I think um, you, you really want results and you, you really need that to work. And they didn't go out this year and get a big middle, middle of the order bat to re- quote unquote replace Bryce. And maybe some of that was because they didn't know if Bryce would come back. The market also wasn't really flooded with guys of that sort, but, but they, they really made sort of smaller deals, one year deals, more, on the, on the peripheral of the roster for, um, for the lineup. And, uh, and it really was an all in investment on pitching with Patrick Corbin and what they're paying Scherzer and Strasburg. So that's kind of a big thing I'm looking at is will this staff live up to the expectations that come with how, how much the organization has invested in you. And that will ultimately decide how the nationals fare. It's not, maybe it's not necessarily a spring training storyline, but it's one that going into the year is going to be a really big thing for this team. Yeah, I definitely agree on the uh, Patrick Corbin front because I think he's going to be one of these players that's going to allow them to take a big step forward from last year because you had Scherzer and Strasburg, obviously Strasburg, good when he's healthy. But then after that, you had Gio, Tanner, Tanner Roark, who are kind of eating innings, but you need Corbin to go in there and put out the high quality innings. So you can't sure. touch too much on spring training results, but it'll be, I guess it will be good to get, a first look at him with the Nationals, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, you could say that while I kind of made it a staff-wide thing, I'd say Corbin specifically is going to be extremely interesting and important just because he's sort of the key there. Uh, you somewhat know what you have in a healthy Strasburg. You know what you have in Max, but what Patrick Corbin ends up being will have a major effect on sort of how the Nationals fare uh, in 2019 overall. Mm. Uh, and one last thing before we get into some listener questions. Uh, reports emerged about the Nationals potentially being considered for the London 2020 series. Obviously, everyone can guess by my accent. I'll be pretty happy if they come over. Uh, the Nationals and Mets and the Cubs and Cardinals are the the two series being considered would like to be in the Olympic stadium in June. Have you practiced your British accent yet? <laughs> no, I haven't, but um, I, maybe I'd have to, right? I, I don't know. It's um, that, that'd be really fun though. I've never been over there. I, I obviously be asking you for uh, recommendations <laughs> for where, for what spots to hit. And uh, I'm game. If the nationals want to go play a game over there, I will, I will be there. Um, you know, I'll be there as soon as I can. So it'd be really fun. <laughs> it's definitely uh, a, yeah. One. I, I mentioned it before we came on. I think they'll probably lean towards the Cubs and the Cardinals based on the fact that they've sent over the, the Red Sox and Yankees this year. But it's uh, it's been interesting to see the reaction of a, of the American fan base. Um, you get kind of a nice 50-50 split between we don't want to lose a home game, we want to keep it in America, and then another half kind of getting really excited about potentially going over. Um, guess that would be one of the perks of being a beat reporter. Right. Yeah. And are you suggesting that the Nationals and Mets are not a rivalry, as big a rivalry as the Cubs and Cardinals? <laughs> uh, like 14 year history compared. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'd agree with that. I think if you're trying to draw a big audience and sort of build up that tradition, the Cubs and Cardinals are probably the way. Yeah. Well, uh, the announcement will probably come. I think it came in May for the Red Sox and Yankees. So that that's going to be something to keep an eye out earlier on this season. Right. Uh, just to wrap up, we've got some listener questions. We've got one from EHay2K who said, assuming Bryce doesn't sign with the Nats, what would your opening day lineup be? And that's that gives it a bit more certainty because you're probably going to have Adam Eaton leading off, Trey Turner hitting second, and you've got some of the middle-order guys. I'd be interested to see how the 6-7-8 plays out. You probably have the catchers hitting eight, I would guess, maybe. Right. John Gomes is a... Is that the best eight hitter in baseball? Like that's a really good eight hitter. Um, I, yeah, it's really hard. Like I, Scherzer pitches obviously. It's Scherzer to Grom, which would be really fun. Uh, I'd say lead off, lead off, Eaton and right. Hit Turner second at short. Hit Soto third and left. Hit Rendon fourth at third. Hit Zimmerman fifth at first. Hit Dozier sixth at second, and then. Either hit Robles seventh and Gomes eight, or flip those. That's where I wouldn't be too sure, but you might want a guy who's more likely to turn over the lineup. With Gomes, more experienced hitter, can take a walk and work a count and try and. But then you know you have Max swinging a big stick back there too, so maybe you don't even need to turn over the lineup. Um, yeah, I'd say it's something, something like that. Yeah, I, those those top five are exactly what I would go with. You may even. I know if Dave Martinez is feeling a bit brave, you might hit Robles ninth and have him as a second leadoff here. There's there's a few different ways they can go. Oh, yeah. um, but I agree, it would probably be Dozier six, Robles seven, catches eight, and then you can have some nice speed on base in case uh, you need to have the catchers driving a run or something. For sure. Uh, Mike Wilford asks, what are your feelings on the Nats signing Craig Kimbrell? There's been a few of the rumours. I think they've mainly come from 
Ken Rosenthal and John Heyman um, talking about the Nats level of interest in Kimball. It's, it's certainly an interesting one. And when Mike Rizzo has gone out and acquired um, big bullpen arms, so like Rafael Soriano, for example, uh, Doolittle, he spent quite a bit of prospect pa- package on. They do go at the top end. So it's something that I could have seen earlier in the offseason, perhaps if they didn't sign Rosenthal. Um, but at this point, it would you'd probably have to go over the luxury tax to sign Kimbrell. Yeah, and I think it makes sense, like, especially not knowing what Rosenthal is, uh, Trevor Rosenthal is. Um, it, it would make more sense in this case. Like, if you get Kimbrell and then Rosenthal comes out and his lights out, his old self, and throw in 98-99, then you're kind of – maybe you've, you've stacked your bullpen a little too much in terms of just money committed to it. But if Rosenthal is not quite what he was and not really reliable as an eighth, ninth inning guy, uh, maybe you, you would want that dominant righty to pair with, with Doolittle as a lefty because that's a really lethal combination. But uh, I think it would be really far-fetched at this point for them to make a big play for Kimbrell. But again, like, what's that market? And if it's low enough and it gets to like two years for 20 or whatever, like maybe, maybe you pull the trigger and go a bit over the luxury tax. I mean – for all these teams that are so afraid of the luxury tax, ask Boston how it worked out last year. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's uh, it's kind of what you need to do, uh, especially in their case where they kind of assured themselves themselves as top dogs and rode that all the way to the World Series title. So I don't think it happens, but I see where it makes a lot of sense. And I, I mean, it would make your bullpen better and really dynamic, and that's not a bad thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see it. I just don't think it will happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the price point is probably what's brought the Nationals into that market because right. of the- the whole slow free agency. If you got him on, maybe I don't know the uh, the same deal that Zach Britton got for three thirty three. I think he got. Then perhaps you're looking at something there. But yeah, it's it's going to be tough to see it now because the Nats kind of sold out for Rosenthal and Bearclaw earlier on this off season. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't. I don't think that addition happens. Now. It would be a smaller, low cost veteran signing if the bullpen does get added to. But in this case, I think they go to spring training with what they have. Hmm. And then one final listener question we have from Charlie about can the Nationals compete in an increasingly tough division? I think I, th- I don't think it's a question of whether they're going to compete or not. They've obviously built up their roster without Bryce, but it's probably one of the more, well, one of the most talked about uh, storylines this offseason of the NOE kind of a big arms race in that front. So it's going to be very close, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's a really fun division i think it's you know one that it's it's interesting you saw all those teams spend this offseason because it's the only division in baseball where four teams believe they can win it which makes for exciting competition and exciting winter on at least on the national league east front and yeah i think the nationals are if not a front runner you know one and one b behind the phillies and every bit as good as that i'm just the phillies pitching doesn't do a lot for me and that's sort of where i think they maybe misallocated some resources this offseason. And again, like Dallas Keuchel hasn't signed yet. and He could end up with the Phillies and that all changes. And then they become sort of even more dangerous. But the Nationals are, you know, right now, all indications that they're at the top of the National League East. And um, in, a, in a five games, I don't want to go too far yet and start saying too much. But if you can get yourself to the playoffs, you're a really scary team in a, in a, in a, in a playoff series because of Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin. And they have that pitching. So. It, the hardest, you know, it's, it's really hard to get there and baseball season is long and last year so many things happened and so many injuries, you don't know what will happen. But roster-wise and the way they've built, I think, yeah, they're, they're right there. 
yeah, I do think right right now you've probably got the Nationals, the Mets, and the Braves as the top three, but the Phillies would be fourth. But obviously they've got this stupid money that they're still right. not yet. So if uh, I assume have, they're going to spend more, but I guess maybe that's not a hundred percent, you know, safe to say. But I I don't think we the Phillies are what they'll be on opening day right now. Yeah, exactly, and probably the team that's not been talked about enough is the the Braves after what they did last season and more young pitching coming through, which was probably one of their weak spots. I think they're, they're a team that you shouldn't write off by any means. Yeah, I, I agree with you for sure. And, uh, and they were, they're really young and interesting and, and fun. And they made a few good signings. So I, th- again, their pitching isn't as proven as I think it needs to be in order to really be a surefire sort of, and at least contender winner, whatever it may be. But, they're they're also right there, and it's gonna, it's getting really fun here in the division. Yeah, it's been uh, pretty quiet first off season on the beat for you then. <laughs> yeah, right, right. They kept me busy. Although that that was good though, because you know it's sometimes it's like, what am I gonna write? And it's you're sort of like, man, nothing's happening. Like, oh, they signed Brian Dozier. Oh, they signed Matt Adams. And I, I have I have something to write. So I'd say uh, in some ways, Nationals, you made my winter a bit more busier than I wanted it to be. But in some ways, thank you because you gave me stuff to write about. So it was it was. It was, a, it was a double-edged sword, for sure. Yeah, I think the, the longest time between transactions was like three weeks. So. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And, and, and the whole time was spent figuring out what's going to be the next one because we knew at that point that they were building in a way that something was coming soon. So there, were, there was really no downtime. And then that guy named Bryce is sort of keeping up. Well, so. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you'll probably have to talk to some of the other beat writers about last offseason when there was – I don't think there was any like major moves <laughs> – Right. This is like all I know. I'm like, oh, right. Every offseason, there's like 11 moves, right? Is that, is that normal? Uh, I guess talk to somebody who covers like the Rays or the Indians. It's like, no, not so much. Um, but no, it's, it's been fun and I'm looking forward to the year for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much all we've got time for. I want to say thanks to Jesse for joining us on the podcast. And where can our listeners find you? I think you've already teased the article you've got coming out tomorrow as well. Yeah. I'm at, I'm at Twitter. It's uh, at Doherty underscore Jesse. So my last name, then first name. And, uh, Looking forward to you guys following along this year. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. Remember to check out some of our content this week. Take You can take a look at Ross's breakdown of Nat's new signing, Animal Sanchez, and our new contributor, Ed, looked at how Trey Turner deserves a bit more appreciation. You can find us on Twitter at District on Deck. Give us a like on Facebook, District on Deck. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and now we've uh, newly added Spotify, where you can find all our episodes and get them downloaded automatically for you. We hope to be back just before the next first spring training in a couple of weeks. It's nearly here now, so we'll see you then.